Hey everybody, how are you doing today? Great to see you. Thanksgiving, well, it's next, I guess next week is officially Thanksgiving weekend, but uh, it's great to see you here today. This is our third message in our series on the parables of Christ. Uh, we're in Matthew 21, 22. If you got your Bibles, you can have those open. We'll be, we'll be continuing to read on from that. I didn't want to have Tracy have to read for half an hour, but we're going to cover quite a bit of scripture today. Uh, we're going to pause after this message today to kind of kick into some uh, messages for the holidays. We'll have a kind of a special Thanksgiving message next week, and then we'll do three things on uh, Christmas before uh, the end of the year. We'll be back into the parables starting in January of 2021, which has got to be a better year than 2020 <laughs> so far. <laughs> Viruses, uh, maybe vaccines next year. Okay, today we're going to look at two parables Jesus tells back to back. There's actually three parables kind of back to back in the story. I'll kind of mention the first one that we, we, we kind of bumped over. Um, but uh, thanks, Tracy, for reading the, that one we did. Uh, really, I think to grasp the impact of these parables, I need to give you a little bit of a backdrop because what, what Jesus gets into with these gets kind of wonky before we're done. And so helping understand where we are in the story uh, makes, will make some sense for us. Uh, what is going on that has led Jesus to launch into these stories? Well, here's, here's the basic scene. It's Passover week in Jerusalem. And the city typically is about 10 times its normal size as Jews from all over the uh, empire flood into Jerusalem. A lot of people bring palm branches knowing that there's not going to be any place for them inside any building. And so they're going to use these palm branches to kind of bed down in uh, outside or to put kind of lean build lean twos up against the the city walls okay and uh, they've come to commemorate this uh passover a time when god rescued a nation of slaves called israel from egypt and to remind themselves that one day god's promise to bring a savior a messiah is going is going to happen it's going to be fulfilled and uh got to tell you they're they're so ready for that right they're sick and tired <laughs> Of being sick and tired of being ruled by the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Persians and the Greeks and now the Romans. They, they just want some freedom. And it's in this particular setting that Jesus and his disciples kind of arrive over on a hill looking over the city. And Jesus directs two of his disciples to go ahead into town and just grab the first donkey you see and bring it back. And I've got to believe they're thinking, uh, seriously, you, you just want us to steal a, don a donkey? that. That doesn't sound very Jesus-like. And Jesus says, don't worry about it. If anybody asks what you're doing, just tell them the master needs it. Well, they do it and they say that and somehow it works. Jesus then sits on it because he's gonna ride it into town. And in the town, over the last three years, the crowd has heard stories about this Jesus who can walk on water, right? Who can quell a life-threatening storm just on command, who can heal any disease or handicap, who can cast out demons, who can raise the dead back to life and, and teaching. Wow, he delivers the kind of teaching they've, they've never heard before. Jesus has the audacity to say things like, well, you've heard it said in your scriptures, but now I say. I mean, it's, it's like he believes that when he speaks, he's authoring scripture as he's talking. And at every turn, he claims to be God, the only God, the only way, the only truth, the only life. I mean, so when he rides in, he's kind of recognized, and this huge crowd kind of forms, and people start taking off their cloaks and laying them down in front of the donkey, and people brought palm branches, throw those down there too. Somewhere in the crowd, there's a Hosanna that gets shouted, and the crowd kind of reaches fever pitch. You know, Hosanna, Hosanna, 
which means save now. They're, they're chanting, save now, save now, save now. Others cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's, it's, it's gotten kind of crazy. And the disciples have got to be thinking as they're walking alongside this donkey with Jesus on it, oh my gosh, this is it. This is, this is tremendous. It's about time. Jesus is going to take charge and bring this kingdom to pass he's been, he's been talking about. <clears throat> but Jesus isn't just here for the parade, right? He's, he's headed for the temple, the place that God intended people to come and experience a God of love and mercy and grace. Instead, what awaits them there is a den of thieves. I mean, it starts with the currency, right? The temple has its own currency, and you have to use it to buy and sell anything in the temple. So no matter what money you came from all over the empire, you had to exchange it for temple currency. And the exchange rate was through the roof, especially during this week. It's kind of like how the gas prices go up in July, right? <laughs> you experienced that before? They gouged people as they came in and exchanged currency, and they gouged them as they exchanged any they had left on the way out. Oh, maybe you brought your own animal to sacrifice probably too bad for you. The priest would look at it and go, oh, I'm sorry, that's not going to do. There's, there's a blemish on it. But hey, good news for you. You can buy an animal from the temple that's suitable. And the animal they had was probably exactly like the one they brought, just 20 times the price. Jesus walks in, sees all this going on, and he just gets outraged. He starts flipping over tables, flipping over chairs, temple currency everywhere. He sees what's being done in the name of religion, and he's had it up to here, right? When he's finished with them, he turns around and he heals all the blind people and all the lame people who come to him. And there are little kids all over the place dancing around him, singing, Hosanna to the son of David. By the way, somebody's not muted. Try muting. Lose your salvation. Thank you. Anyway, so uh, the religious leaders see what's going on and what these kids are saying, and they come up to Jesus and go, Jesus, do you hear what these people are saying about you? And Jesus says, yes, I do. And this shouldn't surprise you because scriptures predicted this. It's just another way of Jesus kind of sticking it to him saying, oh, you're surprised by this. I thought you were the people who claimed to know the Bible. <laughs> then he leaves, goes outside the city, and then he's looking back at it. He's going to break down in tears, right? I'm not sure it's just because of what's happening in the temple. I think it might be because of the shouts of the people who actually want a different plan than Jesus has. I mean, their plan is, is save now. Come with power. Set, set up your kingdom that will free us from Rome and get our land back to us. Bless us with what we want. And his plan is a little different, to give them what they need salvation from the consequences of their sin, a restored relationship with God, and eternal life in a heavenly kingdom. And those different expectations will, at the end of this week, have that same crowd screaming, get rid of him, go ahead, kill him, crucify him. He has not come to give us what we want. And I think Jesus sees this coming, and he weeps for the city and the people. Well, he goes sleeps that night outside the city. He walks back into the temple courts the next day, and the religious leaders are there waiting for him, still chafing probably from yesterday's insult, and they want to know, <clears throat> who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to ride into our city with all these cheers, to turn over the temple chairs, tables, right? By what authority are you doing these things? 
And Jesus says, well, I will tell you the answer to your question if you answer a question from me. And the question was this. He asks him, what was John the Baptist? What was what John the Baptist did? Was that, did it come from God or from man? And suddenly the religious leaders are kind of gulping a little bit and they kind of huddle. They go, we got to huddle. Here's what they say. Uh, if we say that what John the Baptist did was from God, then we know that Jesus is going to ask us why we didn't believe what John said about Jesus. And if we say it was from man, the crowd's going to rip us to shreds because they all believe that John the Baptist is a prophet, somebody who speaks God's word. So they decide to say, uh, we do not know. <laughs> and Jesus says, well, too bad for you. Uh, if you're not going to answer my question, I'm not going to answer yours. However, I do have something for you. It's parable time. I got some stories to share. Now, as I read this and I was thinking about this, I kind of jumped back a little bit and said, you know what? Maybe I've never walked out of church saying out loud, God, who do you think you are? But I think I've done it. Maybe we've all done it. You know, every time I've heard a message from God that says to me, well, Dwayne, here's kind of here's how I think, and here's how I want you to think, and as a result of how I think and how I want you to think, you should be living your life this way. This might have to change. And when I walk out going, uh, you know, I don't think I'm going to do that right now. <laughs> what I'm really saying is, God, who do you think you are to write into my life and want me to change? So that's just a side note for what it's worth. Well, in the face of this opposition, Jesus says, let me tell you some stories. Now, we talked a couple of weeks ago that Jesus used parables specifically to keep truth concealed from those who had proven they really weren't interested in the kingdom of God. And yet, stories that would also reveal truth to those who were, uh, who were interested. And at this point, I think the word is out on Jesus' stories. They are, they're definitely interesting, even if we're not even sure we understand them. They still are interesting stories. Uh, and so when Jesus announces story time, uh, my guess is the huge crowd gathered in the temple for Passover got quiet and nobody wants to miss the story. And the first one that Jesus tells this day, we didn't read, but it's about a father who has two sons. And he asks the one son to go to work in the vineyard. And the son says, ain't going to do it. No, I will not. But later on, he regrets having said that. And he goes and works in the vineyard. The second son responds, sure, no problem, head right over there. But then he doesn't do it. Jesus asked the religious leaders, well, who do you think it was that did the will of the father? And they, they probably know at this point, somehow it's a trick question, but they're not sure what the trick is. So they just answer what, they, what seems to make sense. Well, it's the one who went. And Jesus said, you got that right. And that's why the tax collectors and the prostitutes are getting into the kingdom of God and why you are not. See, they believe, Jesus said, they believe John the Baptist, who proclaimed to you exactly who I am. But you said, no, we don't believe that. And you've not changed your minds despite all the proof you have seen. So I'm just gonna tell you another parable. Let me tell you a story about a guy who sets up a vineyard, gives them everything they would ever need, builds all around it, which protects the fruit from the wild beasts and the animals and anybody who might break in and steal it. Builds a watchtower on it for protection, maybe with living quarters. Places decked out to the nines, right? Dug a wine press. So when you come to the harvest time, you don't have to take it to the community wine press and stand in line and wait. You can 
you got your own packaging plant right there on the premises. It's got everything. Rinse it out to tenants. This happened a lot in Palestine. This is, not, this is a familiar story. Palestine at that time was a really great place for a vineyard, but a really lousy place for the wealthy to come and live. It's a little podunk spot way on the eastern side of the Roman Empire, not where the wealthy and well-to-do want to hang out. Not much luxury there. So the Roman elite would come, look around, buy a vineyard, set it up, get people to run it, and then go back and live in better places in the empire. But it's at this point that Jesus does what he typically does. He takes this story that seems like it's going to be ordinary and adds a surprising twist and makes it kind of extraordinary. When this owner sends three servants to collect his share of the fruit, the tenants beat one, kill the other two. Then the owner sends even more servants and the tenants beat them and kill all of them. So the owner says, well, forget this. I'm going to send my boy. They listen to him, but they kill him too. And they're thinking, oh, the heir is gone. We'll now inherit this. And everybody listening to this story has got to be thinking, this is, this is incredulous. This is stupid. What master is going to risk his son after what happened to all these servants? And what tenants are ever going to be so stupid as to think that somehow they're going to inherit this land? This is totally insane. This would never happen. And that's the point, right? Anytime you get to the end of a Jesus story, and it seems like off the chart, ridiculously far-fetched, we need to stop and take stock because that's usually the point Jesus is making. He's trying to show the utter insanity of something. And to prove his point, he asked the religious leaders. Remember, he's their prime audience here. What do you think is going to happen to those tenants? And they say to him in verse 41, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give them the fruits in their seasons. See, they think they're so clever, right? They, they know the answer to the question. They're so happy. Unfortunately for them, they really don't get the message yet because there are people who have rejected Jesus. So Jesus comes out with some heavy artillery. He says this to them. Have you never read in the scriptures? And that stopped me right there when I read that. You see, see, if you're talking to the religious leaders of Judaism in Jerusalem, in the temple, in front of a huge crowd at Passover, and you say basically, uh, haven't you guys ever read the Bible? <laughs> That's a slap in the face, a real kick to the gut, and a second one in, in two days. Have you never read in the scripture? And then Jesus quotes Psalm 118, which these guys, by the way, had all memorized. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, that's, that's the one sentence quote from Matthew or from uh, Psalm 118. Then Jesus turns to these guys again, says, Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone that Psalm 118 is talking about will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived, they thought perhaps, maybe, what's going on here? That he was speaking about them. Oh, oh wait a minute. Are, are, are we the bad guys in the story? <laughs> and they got mad, right? And says this, they were, they were seeking to arrest him. Oh, yeah, they were like the son who told the father, yes, with no intention of going to the vineyard. They were like the tenants who killed the servants and the son, and instead of repenting and changing their minds about Jesus based on what they've seen and heard, they sought to arrest him, but they couldn't pull it off just yet. Why? Well, we're told why. They feared the crowds because the crowds held Jesus to be a prophet. So the religious leaders get it, that this story is about them. 
in the Old Testament, which was their Bible at the time, which they allegedly had read, the vineyard was always a reference to Israel. It's, it's there in Deuteronomy 2 and Jeremiah 32 and Psalm 80, Isaiah 5. It's all over the place. Israel is God's vineyard in this Middle East wasteland. God has given them his promised land, set everything up for them that they need. And so when Jesus starts talking about this, the religious leaders know he's talking about Israel and they perceive somehow that they are the bad guys, the tenants in the story. So again, let's just think about the story. The owner, the God figure in the story, gives the tenants the vineyard, the wall, the watchtower, the wine press, everything they need. The vineyard lacks nothing. It's yours to live in, thrive in, take care of, build wealth, right? Owner has an amazing amount of patience. And I think that's the point. The owner is over the top on patience with servant after servant. He finally sends the son. They think if we kill him, we'll get the farm. It's really stupid. But Jesus is sort of foretelling his own death in this story. And that really shouldn't surprise us. Three times earlier, Jesus sat his disciples down and told them, look, here's the deal. Jerusalem is going to be where I'm going to go to die. I'm going to hand myself over. They're going to beat me. They're going to mock me. They're going to whip me. They're going to crucify me. But three days later, I'm going to rise from the grave. From the grave. He knows what he's come to do. And he's telling the religious leaders here, haven't you read the Old Testament? Yeah. It's prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet. Servants of God that you have beaten and killed. And now God's son, me, has just ridden into town. And you are standing here saying, who do you think you are? You guys are like those tenants, those insane tenants, the stupidest of people. And you, like them, forget that God the master is going to deal out judgment. So lesson here for us, I think, is we should never confuse God's patience with God's laziness. We should never confuse his patience as uh, condoning our bad choices. It's, it's just the incredible, insane patience of God that continues for us in the hope, you know, that one day, one Sunday message, <clears throat> one Bible study or small group meeting, uh, one time of meditation in God's word, somehow will get through to us and we would respond, whoa, oh, that, that's what God is. That's what God wants for me. That's what his son came to do for me. I will do it. And God's patience just keeps on coming and coming and coming until finally, you know, it doesn't. If we ever get to that point, all that's left for us is judgment, right? But Jesus lets these people know that privilege and freedom and responsibility is going to be taken away from them because they missed the message time and time again. And now they're missing the son himself. And Jesus says, yeah, you could, have, you could have chosen to fall on this stone, Jesus, and been broken. But now that stone is going to fall on you and crush you. So I hope we get something, right? Get this part in this story. At some point in our existence, all of us will be broken. Everybody. But we get to choose how and when, right? We can either voluntarily come to Christ who is the very foundation, the cornerstone on which everything else is built, that holds everything else together. We could choose to fall on Jesus, the cornerstone, and be broken, right, in humility and saved. Or we can reject him, be unmoved by God's long-suffering patience, and find out that one day we're going to be broken by, we're going to be crushed by Christ falling on us in judgment. That's what happens with the stone the builders rejected. It's an incredible picture. But interestingly enough, as bad as it is, Jesus isn't done with these guys yet. 
In case they still don't get it, since a lot of religious leaders weren't farmers, he tells a second parable, boom, right after this on the kingdom of heaven, starting in Matthew 22, starting in verse 1, if you want to look at it. <clears throat> and again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, the kingdom of heaven is like may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, ordinary story there in the beginning. All of a sudden, a surprise twist. King organizes this wedding feast. He's previously invited a bunch of people to the feast, right? So think of this as kind of a save the date type of thing. And uh, here's the king, right? So uh, everybody would want to be there. It's the talk of the town, right? And as festivities are getting organized and the day is drawing near, he sends out some more servants to give everybody kind of a reminder, maybe some additional information, a specific time to arrive, perhaps, whatever. Maybe think of this as the official RSVP or something. But who would want to miss this? I mean, how often do you get invited to a party thrown by the king? Wedding's a big deal uh, in that day as it is in ours. But then the typical Jesus twist, the people refuse to come. And we're going, what, what, who would refuse the party of the century? Well, the king couldn't believe what he heard. So he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I prepared my dinner. My oxen, my fatted calves have been slaughtered. Everything is ready. Come to the feast. You see it, right? King has done everything for all the invitees to have joy and celebration, just like in the other parable. Everything is done, taking care of it all. Like, what do we got to bring? Nothing. Anything you have, the king already has it. You just got to show up. But then it gets even weirder. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. Okay, it's gone from weird to totally insane, right? Who killed somebody who just invited you to an all-you-can-eat barbecue? Oh, that, that invitation just makes me so mad. I'm going to have to torture you and kill you. I mean, that makes no sense whatever, right? Who does that? It's nuts. That's, I think, the point Jesus is making in the story. You, you think the king isn't going to react? He does. He's angry. He sends his troops, in verse 7, destroys the murderers and burn their city to the ground, right? So, again, let's not get all upset with Jesus. It's a fictional story. It didn't really happen. He's telling a story to emphasize something that, that's just as crazy that's actually happening in our world, right? It's designed to get people's attention. Okay, back to the parable. He said to his servants, okay, wedding feast is ready, but those I invited were not worthy. So go into the main roads, invite as many wedding feast guests as you can find. And the servants went out into the roads and gathered everybody they could find, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. So here's what we need to do. If you've got your Bibles, circle the word bad, and then in the margin, write, hey, I'm in the Bible. <laughs> you and I are right there. We're bad, but we made it, right? So anyway, just, just a little humor. Okay, this guest came, these people who thought there was no chance in the world they'd ever be invited by a king to a banquet. And they're all milling about, probably just awed by it all, when the king shows up in verse 11. He comes in to look at the guests, but he saw a man there who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And the man was speechless. Okay, again, a twist. <coughs> King walks around, sees one guy dressed inappropriately. I mean, maybe he had cut off blue jeans or something. I don't know. But he said, how'd you get in here wearing that? The guy had no response. And then the story goes completely over the top. Then the king said to the attendants, I know what you're thinking he's going to say. He doesn't say that. 
He says, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. At that point, I'm going, whoa, what just happened here? I thought he was going to tell the attendants to take this fellow up to this king's chambers and fit him up with a wedding garb, maybe put a royal robe on him or something. Instead, it's tie him up and throw him into the darkness. So at that point, we got we to camp on this a little bit because all of a sudden, we, we're not liking Jesus' story very much. And if God the Father or Jesus is the king in this story, they're not very likable either. Was Jesus just in a bad mood, knowing what was going to happen to him in a few days? No, he's just telling a story with a completely crazy ending to make a point. And we better not leave until we get the point. Because anytime I get to a place where I find a Jesus I don't like and agree with, I got to stop and dig in. So here's some stuff to consider. The very first guests invited are all either indifferent or actually opposed. I mean, they got no interest in honoring the king's son because that's what the banquet was for, right? And there's this fellow who shows up dressed in some way that dishonors the whole purpose of the affair. And he and all those other people who had better things to do, they all suffer the same fate. See, whenever, whenever the answer that any of them gave, it's all the same, really. Some of them say, yeah, I can't make it. I can't make it. Other stuff to do. I got a field to attend to. I got business. I got to go to work. And Jesus is saying, are you, are you kidding me? Compared to a once in a lifetime opportunity, you found something in this world that's more important. You think there's something more important, more, more, more better for you than than the, a relationship with the creator of the universe and his son? See, what seems like great excuses didn't pass muster. You either accept what God is offering or you rejected it. If you're indifferent, you say, I got to do this other thing now. Or if you're opposed to it, you just say, okay, let's do this. Let's kill the messengers. Let's kill the people who made the invitation. Or you can just show up and be completely unchanged like this guest. And Jesus is saying, look, you, you all get the same fate. You're either in or you're not. There's, there's no middle ground. I mean, I don't know if you're old enough to remember this. Uh, I've just watched season four of The Crown, by the way, which is, not a, which is not a happy place for the royals, right? But anyway, I remember this. I remember Diana and Prince Charles when they got married. Not a big thing for me, but it was a big thing for Jackie. <laughs> so we got up at the crack of dawn, because after all, you got to watch it live, and they're five hours ahead of us. So we did, up at the crack of dawn. That's royalty, right? We don't have royalty in our country. So for some reason, this wedding was special. But uh, can you imagine what Jackie would have been like? Has she been personally invited by the queen mother to the actual thing in London? Yeah, a once in a lifetime event. Oh yeah, somehow we probably would have found a way to pay to get there. Probably still be paying that off. Anyway, anyway, in the parable, you might have a lot of excuses, but none of them are the good reason. You don't wanna miss this offer from the king. But so many people in the stories are busy making a living, so busy, in fact, that they fail to make a life. So busy with the things of this world, they're missing eternity. And the king comes in and finds one who's not changed, not in the correct attire somehow, and he throws them out. So what's that about? Charles Spurgeon, I was looking at all the commentaries to try to find somebody with some wisdom on this. And Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorites, said this. He said, this man came because he was invited, but he only came in appearance. The banquet was intended to honor the king's son but this man meant to do nothing of the kind. He was willing to eat the good things set before him, but in his heart, there was no love either for the king or for his beloved son. See, the point of this ending of Jesus' story that I didn't get at first is that you can't just 
be invited to the wedding and just come and do what you please. You, you can't come through this invitation to honor the son and say, <clears throat> it's only all about what I get out of this. He didn't want to honor the son. He wanted to eat the ribeye or whatever. He was insulting the king who said, this entire thing here is for my boy. And this guy's only interested in the gift bag at the door, right? He just wants the gifts, not the giver. He wants the benefits. I'm not sure exactly what the infraction was, but when the king asked, why did, how did you get in here wearing these clothes? The man is speechless. Something about this, he knows he's got no excuse. <clears throat> he knows that he was wrong. I see, it wasn't the actual clothes he came in. It was the spirit that led him to wear them. And the king said, you, you go out and buy, you go out and buy anybody, good and bad, from any walk of life. It wasn't what the guy was wearing. It was the unchanged heart that this guy brought with him. See, both of these stories that Jesus tells, a master of a vineyard who's done everything for the tenants for joy and celebration, a king who's done everything to prepare the guests for so joy and celebration. You've been invited, as have I, right? And we know we shouldn't have made the guest list, right? Anybody believe that you earned your way into heaven? You, do you deserve to be invited? I didn't. I didn't get deserved. I didn't deserve it. We know we don't deserve the vineyard. But with this invitation that goes out to everybody, there's a responsibility that comes with getting what we do not deserve what we could not possibly have earned. I, I get the kingdom of God, right? I get all that and everything that God has for me, but it comes at the expense of Christ's life. He paid the price. He paid the debt. So you and I get to come in free. That, that's grace. Invited to join in the celebration we don't deserve except for Christ. <clears throat> and it seems like with that kind of grace, of grace, there comes a responsibility. As a tenant, as a guest, it's my ability to recognize that, hey, this isn't my life. My master, the king, has given me everything. I've got a responsibility to respond to that appropriately. <clears throat> I don't just take the vineyard. I don't just take the banquet. I don't just take the grace and do what I please. I'm putting on a new garment. I'm, I'm wearing Christ now in my life because of what I've been given. It's, it's really the tension we have in church, if you think about it. Aren't we saved by grace and grace alone? And we all go, yes, we are. Sure we are. That's right. That's grace and grace alone. Yeah, if that's the case then why do preachers keep yakking about a loving response of obedience to that grace? Because a response really shows where your heart is. <clears throat> Try to look for a real life example of this. So I'll, I'll just use this one. 27 July, 1974. On that day, Jackie shows up in a gown she had to buy. Her attendants show up in dresses they had to buy. Me and my guy show up in tuxes we rented. I couldn't get I do out of my mouth fast enough. And then, and then she said, I do, right? And because of that gift to me, that, that grace, I've tried my best to show her that I'm all in for her, that she's the only woman I want, that she's gorgeous and smart and beautiful and talented. And ultimately the reason I am who I am today, right? And you could ask, well, was it the I do's at the altar that, that created the marriage? Or was it the loving relationship after that? And I would say, yes, both are true. On that day in 74, Jackie as a gift entered my life, and I received something I could not possibly have deserved. But if, if, if from that day on, I was unchanged, I was wearing the same clothes I shouldn't have worn, right? If, I, if from that day on, I still did as I pleased. If from that day on, I still chose to date other women, right? If from that day on, I used my time just like I had before, if from that day on, I still followed Dwayne's hopes and dreams and only Dwayne's hopes and dreams, I can promise you this, there wouldn't, there wouldn't be a marriage. Oh, there might still be a piece of paper in a courthouse in Southern Indiana, 
but there would be no thriving, ever deepening relationship. See, receiving grace results in actions that respond to that grace, a love that responds. Grace and the love in response to grace go hand in hand. So yeah, I'm saved by grace, grace alone. But what the king is saying is that when the grace is truly received, it conjures up a change of heart. And the change of heart is a deep and deepening love for the giver of the grace, right? It's just a natural response. The love becomes all in. You just don't walk in with your old self looking for the bennies. Oh, you're, you're, you're not here to honor the son, the provider of the grace. You, you can exit stage left. See, if we were offered heaven and all it has to offer without Jesus being there, would you be just as happy? I mean, is it my goal in life to get to heaven and experience all the bennies there? Or is it my goal in life to honor the son? Maybe we should be in this position. Can't wait to get to heaven. Can't wait to get to heaven because then I get to meet Jesus personally. Maybe dare to touch him. Can you imagine getting a hug from Jesus Christ and to thank him for the invitation you've gotten to be able to be there? And with every one of our great experiences we have in heaven, won't we remember for all eternity that it is because of Jesus? Will, will we ever tire of honoring him? I don't think so. Because he's the one who rode into the town on a donkey to pay the price owed to his father for your sins and mine with the intention of coaxing us into the heaven, into the kingdom and changing us. But this guy comes in unchanged, as were the tenants and all the others who were invited, but spit on the grace offered. See, you just can't stand there and say, I do, and then go out and say, it's not going to change your life. Saying I do means I'm yours now, and that changes everything. I'm not really in charge of me anymore. I'm, I'm one over to be about what you're about. And God has said, I do to us. And that grace empowers us and gives us. So we get the Holy Spirit, right? Which God uses to change us and work through us. Grace is what I'm saved by, but grace does a work in us and a work through us. Gets rid of the ickiness of Dwayne and we put more of Christ on. That's what grace does. It starts to power wash the decks of Dwayne, right? You show me someone that has no love and devotion and service to Christ, I'll show you someone who's never really accepted the grace, the invitation. Oh, they may have said a prayer at some point. They may have shown up at the banquet once, but they never were changed by it. And you can bet they probably left the party early. Jesus said, let me tell you what the kingdom of heaven's like. Many are invited, many are called, but few are chosen. I, I, I gotta wonder, right? I wonder whether there's anybody here, anybody that might listen to this podcast or watch this video later on, that might be willing to admit, you know, that this might be me. <laughs> I mean, you'd really love to have all the binnies of God without really honoring the Son. You want all the feasts. You want all the rewards of God. You stood on the creek, on the streets crying out, save now, save now. I want you to come in power. Set something up for me. But you never really were allowing God to have all of you or to change you. Never really wanted that. You just want God to bless your life, but never surrendered that life to him. Never fallen on Jesus, the cornerstone and been broken. I'll just say, if, if that's you or that was me, I, we might be standing at the banquet wearing the wrong clothes. Clothes that kind of reflect you're not really that into him. Some of us might just be indifferent. We can't really be bothered. We're about our work. We're about our families. We're about our livelihoods. We're about our hobbies. We're about our comforts. We're just not that into God, right? Some people might even be opposed. You're still upset with God for something. You know? What happened to you? What happened in your marriage? What happened with cancer? What happened with the son or daughter? Or myriad other things, right? We've all got issues with God. Didn't really matter. 
all the types and all the reasons that cause us to dishonor God's son have the same exact fate. And that fate's going to happen outside the kingdom. So I'm just going to close this in prayer. And uh, I want to give you an opportunity to actually be thankful for the grace you've received and the fact that you've become a new person. Or just go, you know what, maybe, maybe I ought to change my clothes. Maybe I ought to really do something to honor us. Maybe I ought to really recognize that I've been received this incredible grace and really accept it. Right? Let me pray for us. God, we love you. Um, we, we thank you for these parables, but man, they are, they are tough to slog through. 